0: Hello and welcome to Extraordinary Voices for Extraordinary Times, a monthly podcast brought to you by the University of Queensland Press in collaboration with the Copyright Agency. Assalamu Alaikum, my name is Omar Sehka. I'm a poet and the son of Lebanese and Turkish Muslim migrants speaking to you from unceded Gadigal and Wangal Country. Each episode, Ellen van Nierven and I will take turns as hosts and be in conversation with a poet we believe has a vital voice. It's really exciting for us to be able to platform poets we admire. Poetry is what we turn to in uncertain times, and if there is any one way to categorize this time, it is surely as one of profound uncertainty. It is our hope that we can help each other confront and move through this feeling without surrendering to it. For each episode, we invite our guest poets to write a new poem or suite of poems that reflects the times we face while also giving ourselves the same challenge. You're about to hear us talk through the process of doing that as well as readings of the poems. Today, I'm joined by Uyang Yu. Uyang is a Chinese-born poet novelist, editor, and translator based in Melbourne. He has published 127 books of poetry, fiction, non-fiction, literary translation, and literary criticism in both English and Chinese. He edits Australia's only Chinese literary journal Otherland. His poetry and translations have been included in major Australian collections such as the Penguin Anthology of Australian Poetry, the Macquarie Penn Anthology of Australian Literature, and the Turnrow Anthology of Contemporary Australian Poetry. He has two new collections, Terminally Poetic, out with Jeninderra Press and a chapbook of prose poems called Life After Death via MPU. I encourage you all to purchase those and support this incredible poet. Welcome, Uyang.
1: Uh thank you, Omar. You sound beautiful, your voice.
0: I'm glad you like it.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> how are you?
0: Tell I'm me. good.
1: I'm good. Yourself?
0: Given that I am I'm Lebanese, uh you know, it would be remiss of me not to mention that you know Lebanon is going through a series of crises at the moment. Um yeah. not just with the enormous explosion that occurred the currency kind of collapsing and uh, you know people are starving poverty rate has increased so much so and I, I'm, I'm, I'm really frightened for my family over there but this is, this, is, this is kind of the experience of being in diaspora you know uh, being of uh, the child of migrants mm. um, you are concerned with multiple countries multiple Correct. communities and you would know about this, and this is a feature of your work. Correct. Yeah, I mean, how do you feel at the moment being a Chinese-Australian and and being part of that divide in a time where uh, racism against uh, Asian people and in particular Chinese is seriously on the rise, or seems to be?
1: I have somehow reached the point where I could almost say to myself that I have gone beyond. Am able to look back on all the incidents happening and recording them from my point of view. And in this uh, crisis that is sweeping all of the world, I find myself uh, extremely creative, in a way that uh, it has never happened to me before. Because as uh, as I uh, express uh, elsewhere in my poetry, social distancing is not something new. It's not something that just happened because of COVID-19. It, it, it happened right from the minute when I set my foot on the Australian soil, 29 years ago. I got so used to it that I'm not even aware of it until it was brought up in this Mm. new climate. Is
0: it a unique time? Is it a new climate? Uh, Because I get a sense in your work, and you've you've, uh, written extensively on this, not just in poetry. uh, It's also part of your PhD looking at Chinese representations in Australian media. In fiction, broadly, but but uh, also in newspapers and things like that, and you reference that in one of your poems that you will be published as part of this project, where there was a poem published in the Bulletin nearly 140 years ago in Australia that had the lines: "Those bad Chinese, those bad Chinese, foul scatterers of strange disease," <laughs> uh, which is. I mean, it's, it's really not at all far from what is being said right
1: now. Exactly. Uh, because the image, people have forgotten what they did 140 or 50 years ago. And now is somehow carried over into the present times. Whenever, for, for someone like me, who did the PhD thesis, who did the research, whenever some, someone talks about this uh, origin of the disease, my mind is immediately brought back to 150 years ago, when the Chinese were excluded, not just from this country, but from the five I countries that is New Zealand, USA, Canada, and the UK, and Australia, of course. Yeah.
0: And so, and we see, we see this in, in your work, this, this idea that actually for uh, racialized communities, not much has changed. No. Uh, because we 're constantly uh, ostracized and marginalized and interrogated and seen with suspicion which which has the same feel as a kind of social distancing as you say i don 't just want to talk about uh, that, although I think it's it 's very important, and we 're going to hear from you in a little bit um, as you read some of the poems that you wrote you know I, I asked for some poems from you, and you sent me. 21 pages (laughs) of poetry. Uh, We've selected a suite from that, um, which I'm very excited for people to read. Is this the norm for you, Uh, writing an enormous amount, being really prolific? I mean, 127 books?
1: I have uh, always been experimenting in my approaches to fiction, long fiction poetry, bilingually, in both the Chinese and the English languages. And one of the things that I've been experimenting with poetry is, uh, is the spoken word. Not in the sense that people do poetry along the lines of the spoken word, but in the sense that uh, I don't write poetry now, or I do both. I write poetry and I speak poetry into my mobile phone so that uh, as soon as i speak it's recorded and this is a great uh, way of uh, of, uh, doing poetry if uh, you go out in the open you walk around the park you go from street to street as poetry comes to you you just speak it from your mind and it gets recorded and turn into words. You do a minimum amount of editing and the poem is done. On my daily walks, uh, I could manage about uh, four to five or sometimes seven poems in both languages. And uh, I'm quite happy with the, uh, not only the output, but also the quantity because there's something that's special about the speech. There's a lot of elements that that you couldn't possibly just sit down, facing a computer, trying to think of images or words or whatever. These are so natural and spontaneous. A couple of years ago, when I was teaching creative writing in Shanghai, that's one of the things I urged and encouraged my students to do with their mobile phones. Because these days, everyone... If you look at him or her has a phone in his or her hand, looking, checking, you know, it's almost like twenty-four hours a day. Why don't you, yeah, yeah why don't you do it creatively, mate? Right? Yeah, just yeah. do it creatively for me, please, just for one second. <laughs>
0: Uh, I love this uncle energy I'm getting from you right now. But I, get, I understand what you're saying. Because you know, I, I, I get a sense of dailiness from your work. There's an, there's an everydayness and an ease that I think can only come from many years of practice. You know, When I read your work, it flows like thought. It's full of the contradictions, the humor, the ironies, the grace and hardship. In life uh, and most refreshingly for me there's no self-consciousness around the act of writing this is something that I, I, I despise in modern Anglo poetry specifically. <laughs> yes, it's a sense right. of yeah. cringe you know like they're ashamed yeah. that they're writing poems
1: like I hate it. <laughs> I, I often feel very ashamed of being a poet I hate myself di- for being a the poet. But for different
0: reasons, I, I, I imagine. Why do you hate No,
1: it? I, I just hate it. A poet is it's a good for nothing. A poet is actually a bad for nothing. It's a rubbish. I hate a poet. I, I would kill a poet. I would kill myself for being a poet. But, but, but that helps me along and produce more poetry. You know? Uh, <laughs> you, just you, you just can't stop yourself from doing it You can't no, stop I, yourself not, you know, from Every day Every day <laughs> I come back with four or five or seven poems I have to I'm made, I'm made so busy, you know Typing <laughs> the novel Doing whatever Editing It's just so You wonder You keep yeah. wondering why But you keep doing it And eventually I, I use the word breathing because you can't stop breathing. And breathing is the writing of poetry. Breathing is poetry. Simple as that, just one word, breathing in and out, in and out for the rest of your life until you die and stop breathing.
0: I absolutely agree with you. I understand uh, the frustration that comes with this sense of we can't stop doing this thing. And I feel like the reason you come to resent it in a way is because of how it's treated by society. We understand it as being as essential as breath. We can't stop doing it. We could talk about how how important poetry has been in our lives, but when we put it out into the world and it gets neglected or dismissed and it doesn't pay you any money and you're constantly doing this thing and you can't stop doing this thing even when society relentlessly tells you it's of no value. Uh, Yet absolutely leads to loathing. Maybe now is a great and hilarious time for you to read some of your poems for us.
1: All right, I'll do that. The first one is the killer virus uh, description. It enters by nose, it enters by mouth, it enters by eye or ear or tooth. The way it enters resembles very much love, igniting fire from fire to fire. Then it goes into hiding, like love also, not wanting to be detected, least of all known two weeks after it begins ripping seeing people fall out on the street putting them away from the locked down cities for once streets of the country are thoroughly happy because free from traffic and constantly the most resistant part to it now worldwide and most famous let me welcome it and call it killer verse. The second one is, yay, I am in despair. There's no incentive. It's been isolation like this ever since I came to this country. Social distancing to the degree of self-destruction. Who contacts who? Who is supposed to approach who? Who? Self-imposed isolation, self-imposed distancing, self-imposed ignoring. To be a migrant in this country is to be a disease, a pre-existing virus. Who wants to know who? Who needs who? Am I a fictional character on my own? Am I a fiction of myself? I hear you, I hear you, for you say, why don't you die now? I did see, though, my own corpse last night. People busy moving around me, and I not a word. Is that how post-life feels? The chasm is vast, so vast we can't even begin talking, eyes looking the other way. Never caring to meet, even in the same city, until your obituary. A self supporter, a self isolator, a self distancer, you always have been because of the circumstances, because of no because, self reliance, self writing, self pleasing to the degree of self dying. Now, a builder of self graves. You have no visitors, not even virtue. Time to die, to go, to disappear, to self white out. Why bother breathing? The same breath breathed out by strangers who befriend you, but you never want to know? The silence, the quietness, the quietude, the solitude are so oppressive now. Billions of mouths, unemployed, are howling in no sound. Fine with me. It's all fine with me. I'm but another disease that is no longer novel, quit me in poetry, if that's what you want. Let's welcome vivid 19ism here to stay and for always. And it's good company, yay. These are
0: extraordinary poems. I'm so glad that you agreed to be part of this project. I love killer verse. Comparing the coronavirus to love itself is just so unexpected and apt. Can you can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, poem?
1: the COVID nineteen is actually uh, uh, it's it's uh, the best thing for a poet because the COVID nineteen is a poet. He's say- a, he's, a, he's an international poet, you know. <laughs> he kills. He's out rampage. But of course, I'm I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, we need to, we need to get rid of it straight away. We need. But in a way, it sort of works in reverse as an inspiration and re- and reverse inspiration for the poet yeah. for the for the most unwanted thing in the world
0: i think that's something that uh i try to do a lot as well uh and many poets do take something that is causing uh you great distress or harm that you witness in the world and uh trying to transform it yeah. using language but what i love about that analogy what i love about it uh, is that you know you can you can try to protect yourself from love, but ultimately you will always be vulnerable to it. In the it's same bad. way as this, in the same way as as a virus. So I thought that was particularly brilliant. And then the the despair in in uh, yay, <laughs> yay. <laughs> is, I mean, it's just fantastic. What is your relationship to editing? both by yourself with respect to revision and and also with other editors. So you spoke earlier about uh, how you find speaking into your phone allows you to create poems more easily now. Do you subsequently change what you
1: spoke, wrote? There are two things to be said about editing. Years ago, I, uh, someone from Scotland gave me an interview and uh, I talked about my own idea of what I term creative mistakes. What I meant was we tend to be uh, an editor whenever it comes to the writing. We correct ourselves. We overcorrect ourselves. However, there are so many mistakes in poetry that are good poetry that I do not want to correct. Instead, I would keep them and keep making mistakes so that my poetry becomes uh, erroneously poetic instead of correctly poetic. I hate correct poetry. I hate anything that looks so grammatical. It's (laughs) bullshit for me. I don't want to read anything that is so widely correct. Let me put it that way. And when it comes to editing, there's so much to talk about. Years ago, when my first novel came out, it was sent to, before it was published, it was sent to an editor, and they somehow had heard from someone else that I was someone who refused to be edited. So they incorporated uh, a clause in the contract that says if the author is not cooperative with the editor, there's no book. For me, the Western version of editing is like the Chinese version of censorship in a way. Wow. This is the analogy I, I can find. But most of the editors I've worked with are good. We, we, I cooperate with them. I, I cooperate with all the editors because if I, if I don't cooperate, there's no book.
0: But you're saying there's a, there's a kind of editing that takes you so far away from your own vision, that it, it, it might as well be censorship.
1: Yeah, but to me, creatively, I found uh, imposing editing close to censorship. I make comparisons. The Chinese editing is no editing. When I translated, for example, uh, my translation of Germaine Gris, the female eunuch, the whole woman was published in Chinese. The editor didn't even come back. And the book just came out. If they do do editing, they only edit the bits to do with the unwanted words, like, uh, you know, four-letter words. Yeah, there's one thing I, I remember that's funny. It's a-, it's a novel by Toby Litt titled Corpsing. When I translated into Chinese, I remained uh, faithful to the original when it comes to the word F-U-C-K, you know, because never in the book did the author use, we made love. He simply said, we, and translated as that. When the book came out, without the editor ever telling me that she was going to change anything, I checked against the original in those sensitive places, and I found they've changed everything to, we made love.
0: I love this idea of leaving mistakes in poetry. I've, I've done it a little bit myself, but n- not enough. Uh, but you know, I
1: encourage my students to, to make as many mistakes as possible. If you dare.
0: I'm, I'm far too tied to a certain kind of aesthetic uh, and linearity sometimes. And I know one of my friends, a, a great poet, George Abraham, was talking to me recently about this embracing the mess. Um, in poems. And you do, that, you do that so well. Can we hear the last one more poem from your suite?
1: Yeah, the last one is titled, They Told Me. They told me to fuck off, to go back to my own country, to be better than I always am, to write to an absolutely acceptable degree, to keep silent when a voice is in high demand to revise and keep revising until nothing of me remains, to say nothing good about the country where I was born and bred, to always divide me against myself, to stay away in perpetual lockdown, unless they have a book launch they want you to go to and buy a copy to watch and keep watching their TV commercials. So all you ever think of is buy, buy, buy. To not want to know them because they don't want to know me. To remember that people from my own country are never good enough, have to be wiped out one day or subdued as total slaves. To internalize all the anger, resentment, fury, frustrations, disappointments, despair, to turn into a human-sized atom bomb. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your incredible work with us. I was thinking I would read my poem that I wrote uh, for, this, for this podcast now.
1: Yes, please. Thank you.
0: And it's called Relevant to the Day, July 4th, 2020, after a traffic altercation in Western Sydney. I don't have anything hopeful to say, love. In Bankstown, my cousin was shot in the head. My wife thinks she can have road rage anywhere, wants to know why I couldn't speak. I show her my mouth full of bullets and she insists some people deserve to be yelled at. Get the finger. I swallow the lead. I'm not brave enough to imagine the future anymore. I lost it when I was 15 and another cousin was stabbed to death on the street. I would lie in bed thinking of graves and sleep without entering either alone in the awful splendor of night's arms, trying to picture what comes next without success. A twisted adolescence. Now I can dare to see as far as tomorrow. The laundry, if the sun is out long enough and the line is free. Charcoal chicken, doom, sex, a wet welt. Still, always in silence, my favorite countryside. This is progress. Millions suffer and die in the course of my progress. I grew up believing this was normal, expected. I want to draw a line from one suffering to another, but people keep getting in the way. I saw a parade of empty fridges in Lebanon yesterday. Prayed one of the sad aunties standing next to the emptiness was not mine. I know distance better than I know her face. And so they all became her. I sent money overseas, or rather through my kinship network, and who knows whose mouth it fed. Kholto, I'm sorry. I know money is not bread. They say a famine is coming. No, spreading. There is always a famine somewhere. I have one deep in my heart I am familiar with ignoring. The motherland is begging her children to return. The borders are closed, fridges empty, shelves bare, and I keep thinking, at least one of my mothers wants me now. Or, I'm so full I could vomit, so full I can't move. Or, I will go. When I can, I will go and curl up, Inside one of those fridges, I will whisper, eat as much as you can stomach, sweet siblings, and I will thank God for once that I have to put my body where my poetry is. A reimagining of this poem. I do have a hopeful love. In Bankstown, my cousin was. My wife thinks she can age anywhere. Wants to know why I speak. I show her my mouth full of lets, and she insists some people deserve to swallow. Be led. I'm brave enough to imagine the future. More. When I am 50, I eat another sin on the street. I lie in bed, thinking of raves, and see, without entering, the full splendor of night. Arms. Trying to come, success. Without now, I can dare as far as the sun is long and free. Charcoal chicken, doom, sex, or oh. till a wah license. My favorite countryside. This is progress. Millions curse my progress. I grew up normal, expected. I want to draw a line from one offering to another, but people keep getting in the way. I saw a parade of fridges in Lebanon, prayed the aunties were mine. I know her faces better, my kin, all fed. Khultur, my dear fam, I'm reading. There is always a me somewhere I am familiar with. The motherland is her children. Return the borders, empty selves bare, and keep my mother's full, so full I can move when I will. I can curl up inside his ridges, whisper, take as much as you can stomach sweet bliss, and I will thank God for once that I have to put my body where my poetry is. Thank you
1: thank you so much it's full of passion it's very strong and it reminds a little bit of uh, Adonis is that uh, a Lebanese poet as well
0: Syrian Adonis. poet I adore him oh, po- yeah, yeah yeah
1: no he's he's uh, he's translated into Chinese widely published in China oh
0: wow I wish he was as widely read in English and yeah
1: y- yes no I love his work
0: you were telling me a little while ago that you have poetry that mixes English and Chinese. I want to know about this interplay of languages. Obviously, I, I sometimes put uh, Arabic phrases and words in my poems as I as I did in, in that one.
1: That's right, um, that's right. I love that, yeah, I love that. And the book uh, that was uh, released last year by Pancha and Watman is uh, titled Flag of Permanent Defeat, which is uh, based on Hemingway's uh, the Old Man and the Sea is on the first mm. page when uh, there's a description of the sail that is unfolded like a flag of permanent defeat. I love that because that's a metaphor for poetry a flag. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and particularly, uh, it's more a flag of uh, a permanent defeat when it's combined. With bilingual poetry, which is something I did not just translating but uh, uh, melting two languages in one word or in one poem or in in a couple of lines and things like that. I've been experimenting with that for a long time, and that was uh, the fruition of that.
0: Mm, Fantastic! Well, we've hit our limit for the podcast recording. I again urge. Anyone who is listening to this and anyone who is uh, reading the incredible poems Uyang has uh, provided us for this podcast, please buy his work. He is uh, an astonishing poet who needs to be more widely read in Australia and around the world. Thank you so much, Uyang, for, for joining me.
1: Thank you, Omar, for uh, hosting this uh, wonderful program and uh, for reading your wonderful poem. I really enjoyed. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to Extraordinary Voices
0: for Extraordinary Times. Don't forget to visit the UQP website, www.uqp.com.au to read all the poetry from the series and to find out more information about our featured poets. We hope you'll join us next month as Ellen van Nieuwen returns with all new work.